You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. I'm about to introduce you to someone whose name you will recognise, but about whom I don't think you'll know very much apart from Brexit. Gina Miller, businesswoman, campaigner and the lead challenger legally um, of the government on that determination to make Parliament vote on triggering Article 50. She's written a book, it's called Rise, Life Lessons in Speaking Out, Standing Tall and Leading the Way. And well, I, I, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm, I'm at risk of being a bit of a fanboy on this one. Three years ago, it strikes me that most people listening to this wouldn't have had a clue who you are. Well, in certain sectors, they would have known who I was. Um, in the dry world of investments and pensions, where I've yes, been campaigning... I should tell you, Unfiltered is not... <laughs> exactly. It's not, not targeted not pro- uniquely no. or specifically at the world um, of investment and pensions. No, but maybe the charity sector a bit yes. more, because I've been pretty robust in what I've been saying, calling out some of the dubious behaviours there. But generally, no, I don't think most people would have known. You'd achieved, a, I mean, a commercial prominence and success, but also politically. You were, you were involved, I think, in helping draft the 2015 manifesto for yeah. Yeah, so parts. on pension pension reform yes. um, in the 2015 manifesto, which never was, obviously, because they didn't win. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, I have been politically involved in that and also Centre for Social Justice, um, the modern day slavery bill. So I've been pretty active for quite a few years, but behind the scenes. Yes, not no desire, what we call the look at me gene. There no. was never any sort of show off element to what you were doing. No, it was, it was just an awful lot of work to be done. Yes. Um, and then suddenly I found myself in the spotlight. And what people don't realise is that I didn't I had no intention of being in the spotlight. We, 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 we were was, jumping uh, the gun. We'll get yeah. on to that. <laughs> I, I, I want to begin at the beginning. And the beginning is British Guyana, um, yep. daughter of uh, your father became at the beginning of this millennium, the Attorney General of Guyana. I don't know much about British Guyana. Is that a common ignorance? It is not not only that, but people say, oh, well, you go back to Ghana. And I go, yes. no, no, that's in a different continent. Yes. That's Africa. Mm. But British Guyana, I think maybe the things people know it most for is cricket. We had some great cricket players, Clive Lloyd, etc. But the other thing is that it's where the Queen and Prince Philip went on honeymoon. Yes, cool. And then the other thing is possibly El Dorado might be in British Guyana. Demerara sugar. There are a few things, but in general, most people don't know. It's a very small country. Uh, and, and this is a fascinating background, isn't it? Because the word British in British Guiana is, for people from there, of absolutely paramount importance. So there's a, mm. a flavour of Windrush to, to this ignorance that we have in this country, whereas people who grew up there sort of presume that we have a sense of kinship or, or, or cousinhood oh, oh. As, as opposed to ignorance. I mean, my, my, gro- my memories of growing up is, you know, the picture of the Queen was on the wall. Yes. My mother's f- most precious things were her English Wedgwood plates. If we got chocolate from the UK that said Cadbury's, we grew up with such a love and respect for Britain. And the fact that we would be welcomed with open arms because it was like the, Britain was our mother mm. and we were the children of the Commonwealth. And so everything we did was in reference of Britain. I, I think this is one of the biggest lessons that people need to learn. I mean, it's probably too late now for some of the problems that have been caused. But there's a great line in, in Andrea Levy's book, Notes on a Small Island, about a fellow from, from the West Indies who his brother had been killed in the Second World War as a, as a pilot. So he presumed when he arrived here that they'd roll out the red carpet. Mm. And the, the reality, of course, is incredibly different, as you discovered when you came here to go to boarding school. 
It was different because I thought, ironically, as I said, El Dorado, I thought Britain was El Dorado and I was going to El Dorado and it was going to be all the things I was so dreamed of of reading in, you know, Dickens books. And I grew up on all of those books and the famous five and, you know, everything I read was English and British and that's where I wanted to go. And I remember thinking how grey the buildings were. It wasn't this sunshine place I was expecting. And also people seemed to be much more reserved and didn't accept me, didn't open their arms, Mm. which is what we all thought. We sent everything we produced from British Guiana to England. It was going to be this sort of happy family coming home. And that's, you know, first of all, I sounded differently. My accent then was very different. Um, I looked different. And and everyone sort of, it was what made me different seemed to be the things that people concentrated on, rather than the fact that I had come from a neighbouring country that loved us and we, you know, would be loved. Isn't that interesting? Because some of the people that you've ended up (laughs) opposed to, quite passionately opposed to, they also had a slightly rose-tinted vision of Britain. And they also Mm. grew up overseas. You're you're, you're sort of Daniel Hannans and that dreadful Carswell character. (laughs) And yet they cling to their dream of what it was probably never like. It it, it hadn't hadn't occurred to me before. It's it's a really interesting, it's Mm. a storybook version of Britain. That's right, yes, which you understood and you had, but you quickly jettisoned. Well, when (laughs) I came here, I realised that actually there were things I absolutely loved about Britain and I wanted to embrace and become British in every way I could. But I didn't do it blindly. It was about me making the best of what I could be, but also introducing an understanding, if I could, from British people who had never left and gone to my country. And that's what I was really interested in doing is having that conversation. Whereas I don't think other people have necessarily had that. They still have this sort of storybook view of what Britain is and should be like. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned Enid Blyton and, and, and more so than Dickens, but it's yeah. boys' own stuff, isn't it? It's, it is it's boys comic, own stuff. comic book stuff for people. It, it, it's, well, it's a swashbuckling. I think that's, that's right. the whole thing. Yes. The whole idea of, you know, we can go out in the season. It's a very backward-looking way. What, what I find so ironic about where we are is that for different reasons, both the extremists on both sides, left and right, want to take us back to a place that never really existed. It's it's quite an irony. And, and where you mention the word swashbuckling, it leads inexorably to the word Brexiteer. Yeah. As opposed to Brexiter, but we're, we're <laughs> jumping the gun again. Home was very political. I, I, yes. you, you were surrounded by political people and political issues growing up. But you wouldn't have known that that was extraordinary or abnormal because it was all you knew. It's all I knew. And political in both a big P and a small P, yes. in that every day our conversations were about people and justice and helping each other and uh, duty and responsibility. Those were things that both my parents were very passionate about. And in a big P, because we were going through a very challenging time, you know, we talk about divisions between even Remain in the mm. UK and division. In British Guiana at the time when we got independence, it was very much against the black and the Indians and the different races. So we had a huge racial divide. And the civil unrest that that was causing and literally the murders it was causing at the time when my father was starting his career meant that he was very much in the thick of it, being a young lawyer and a human rights lawyer at that time. So every day, every conversation was about right and wrong, about justice, about people, about pain. So I don't know any different. It was Were you conscious of danger at an early age? Was, was, yes, did, very was much so. Was your father a controversial figure? My, my father was very vocal in standing mm. up. He was, he didn't, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my father's daughter. Um, he, he, under, he said you had to speak up for other people. Right. If they were too frightened, too weak, you had a responsibility if you have a voice to speak up. And that's something he taught me at a very young age. So he spoke up against our dictator, against our government. And there was always this feeling that uh, we were going to be targets, I think, growing up. 
And that perhaps explains something of your political genesis on this side of the world. None of this is a surprise to me. No. Where I am today is not a surprise That's to me. That's what makes you so interesting because um, it's staggering to almost everybody else. On, I, on, on your side, our side. I don't yeah, think but I, I just think it was exactly where I should supposed to be. I'm yes. sort of, it, there's something, when I say I'm quite fatalistic, I think, well, of course it's me. Yes. And I remember sitting in the law firm when, when the sort of other two who were going to bring the case with me sort of fell away for their own reasons. Mm. It was an issue to me. I said, well, of course it's supposed to be me and of course I'm going to carry on. Let's talk, talk a little about what would put you in a position where you could be that person. That person who, who elected to carry on. School was a bit miserable, as far as I can tell. You, you, you were bullied. You experienced racism for the first time. Yeah, it was. It was very nuanced. It was not. Was that a girls' something. boarding school? It was a girls' boarding school. And it wasn't what I'd call racism. It was just right. being treated as different. Yes, okay. and I don't necessarily think that's just because of my color or anything else. It's just because I was different. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, it, it could have been spectacles been, or ginger yeah, hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, okay. I was just different. So I don't yes. think it, I'd call that racism or bullying. You know, I was in Eastbourne, which is a you know a very traditional part of Britain. Mm. I was in a metropolitan city. How so did your I parents choose the school? Huh? <laughs> An interesting. <laughs> Yes. Um, I think the combination of British Guiana or Guiana is very well known for its flora and fauna and its animals and right. frogs. And there are these two incredible brothers who came over to do a book on snakes and insects. And my mother had met them and they happened to be teaching. They're from Eastbourne. They were mm. from Eastbourne. And we were talking, my parents were talking about, um, and they said to to them, they were called the Marx brothers, <laughs> funny enough, yes. um, uh, that... Uh, they wanted a really caring school. Right. So they'd looked through the brochures and got roadie and all the big schools. And they said they were worried because I'd never been away from home ever. Yes. That they wanted a small, caring place. And they found this tiny school for my mother. You were 11 when you arrived I was there. 11, yes. Do you remember the first night, that, that kind of... I remember sense of dislocation. I remember this huge trunk that I had to pull up the steps of the boarding of the room to get into the hall and just standing there and feeling how it was actually a boiling hot summer, yes. 76. And I remember feeling that I didn't recognise anything. Nothing was familiar to me, even though I'd read all about it in books. Mm. Nothing in reality seemed familiar to me. I thought I knew England yes. growing up and, and I realised I actually didn't know anything about in the England I was standing in, that room. And when my mother said to me she had to leave, I just wouldn't let her go. Oh. I just remember that feeling of thinking, but you can't leave me here. This is not England I was supposed to come to. Yes. I had a very different view in my mind of where the school I was going to go to. Did your parents give you, give you an escape route? Did they say if you're miserable after six weeks, six months, you can no. come home? It was, no. It was quite brutal. It was brutal. My, my, my sort of safety net was my elder brother. So he was two years older than me. And Where he was, was he? he was in Eastbourne at um, Eastbourne College. So okay. he was down the road. So, and, you know, we were pretty close fighting. We had the usual sort of scrappy relationship that yes. brother and sister have. But we were each other's comfort. And we, he was down the road. Did you want to me. leave? Did you want to go home? Oh, many times. Yeah. I cried. I phoned on a Sunday. You'd have letters written. The thing is with the letters, we couldn't seal them. The staff had to read them before they went home. So I think the ones where I was really distressed, they never let me send. God, really? No. <laughs> it's, 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 I went to boarding school as well. It's almost, even, even for our generation, 
um, it's almost impossible to believe what we took to be normal. Yes. Isn't it? In terms of, I mean, there was a lot of casual brutality at my all boys school, yeah. particularly my prep school as opposed to my public school. But but a modern listener will find it astonishing that an 11-year-old girl's misery would not be communicated to her parents no. because it made the people in charge of deciding what got <laughs> sent look bad. Yes, so they wouldn't. And also even things like, I remember getting my BCG jab and feeling really terrible, And but I wasn't allowed to go to sickbay for more than one day because, you know, we had to be tough. Weakness. We had to get, yeah, we had to be tough. And it was this whole idea of you have to be tough and survive. And I had really, really long hair. I remember that went past my bottom and I'd, I'd sort of, and I'd have 15 minutes in the freezing cold to wash, get my hair dried oh, and done. Yes. And in the end, it wasn't a question of giving me more time or me not getting sick or getting a head cold, whatever. It was just, no, fine, you have to cut your hair off then. That'll be it. And brutal, you Gosh. know, one plait. Yes, gone. Gone. Seriously. <laughs> yes. Did they let you keep it? I did actually for years it was later. A dressing I did gown keep, I did. <laughs> it was nearly long enough to do that. But uh, no, it was just, it, it wasn't peculiar things I remember that uh, I had to use a knife and fork, but the fork the right way around. Yes. And I'd never come across peas. Right. But I had to put peas and I turned my fork around the other As way. You would. And the next minute I get a, a ruler on the knuckles yeah. that no, that wasn't the proper way to use your knife and fork. And we're thinking, goodness. What is going on? <laughs> were, were there but, any- but these were things that well, we had to do. Well, they were. They, well, they were normal in the sense of they, well, they'd been normalised. <laughs> they'd been normalised. Were there any positives? Oh, I loved being with the other girls. Did because you? Because I had three brothers. Yes. And so I didn't have real sort of a, a connection to the girls. And once I, I had good girlfriends, and that was brilliant. And I, I loved the school bit, was very peculiar in many ways, because it was started by an, a general who wanted to educate his daughters. So he didn't see girls as wanting to achieve any less than boys. Right. So I loved the science and I loved yes. maths and I loved the fact that we could play cricket and rugby. And we, we were we were pretty tough girls. Yeah. And so it was I loved quite ahead of, of its time in some yeah, it ways. Was. It was very progressive. It was always known as a really incredibly progressive school. And we were sort of slightly maladjusted girls and things like that because we we basically thought we could run the world. And, you know, we we were taught Ah, that every day. Planets were aligning. Yeah, they were. And so it was the right school for me. However, my parents found it, it was definitely the right place for me. Why why would it be important to people like your parents to educate you and your brothers in Britain? What would be... Oh, my gosh, that was the pinnacle. If there's anything you could do to get your children to a British education, educated in England was seen as basically like winning a gold medal in the Olympics. And so my parents, whatever it took... They would scrimp, save, whatever it is, because we were going through a a couple of years later, currency restrictions. Mm. They did everything. I mean, I think if I worked it out, my parents probably paid three times as much in fees than they should have because it was on a black market. The currency they were buying was on the black market. Um, But they would have done anything to have us educated in the UK. Because of what they wanted you to achieve in later life, because they saw it as a passport rather than a, an end in itself in some sort of snobbish way. It was, oh, no, it's not. This nothing is your to golden do, no, no, ticket. No, 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 it, it was nothing about snobbery. It was about the fact that if you could get a British education, if you could get the learning and the culture and the music and all the things it exposed you to, you could do anything in the world. And it was never their intention that we would stay. It was just to have the education and go back and be leaders or do the things you were going to do in life. It was it was seen as a bedrock of making you the best person you could be. Yes. But you didn't go back. I didn't go back um, because by the time you were 18, you, you're British and then you go to university and then suddenly all those formative years, you're suddenly British. So at the age of 18, 19, I said my parents did try to get me to go back, especially my father, because his great dream was that I was going to take over his practice. Right. 
So, you know, his not, dream not, was... None of your brothers? No. So that's, dream... a, that's a lot of people in your life, the school and the, and the dad, mm. who, who refused to see your being a woman as being in no. any way an obstacle or a distinction from, from men. No, no, my, my father never treated me as though I was different from the boys. He always said you could be anything. And he always, he gave me such confidence from a very young age because he always told me from a very young age, he told me, you are special and you have a good heart. And I believed that. Why wouldn't I? He yes. was my father telling me this. Yes. So I believed in myself from a very young age because he gave me the ability to do that, which is really, really important. So, so if we met you then at 18, 19... <laughs> What would your ambitions have been? So what do you want to be? What do you want to do? What are you aiming for? I wanted to be the most amazing criminal barrister. Okay. That's what I was going to do. I was going to become the first female, you know, judge in the UK. I had huge ambitions for my legal profession. So I wanted to be extremely successful in law. What happened? I started studying at university. And just before my finals, I was attacked. And I had to take some time out. And I sort of taking that time out, I lost faith in the barriers that were being put up for me to get into the British... We were talking about, you know, 80s here. Mm. And it wasn't that welcoming to a woman, a girl, a young girl of colour, not going to the right boarding school, not going to the right university. You know, it was pretty because closed you'd profession. Because you'd have to get a pupillage. I'd have you, to get a you, pupillage, you exactly. You needed say... to know people. You needed to have gone to the, you know, the select group of public schools, the right public school, yes. the right university to get into those chambers in London to get the pupillage. And I, all of that, more and more barriers seemed to be appearing. And then I was feeling so weak and so broken by the attack. Can that I ask about that? What was... It was... Um, it was a sexual attack and uh, I, it took me a long time to recover from it. Okay. Um, so someone you knew? Or... It was some guys from the college, from the university. But I, I just didn't know where to go and I kept it secret for many years because I just felt shame. Of course. As so many victims, I thought it was my fault. I'd yeah. done something wrong um, and you blame yourself. So I just hid more than anything. For um, years? I, for, for a long time. And then I discovered something because one thing writing, because I've just written a book, and one yes. thing that's really interesting in the book is that I'm not the sort of person who look, tends to look backwards. I sort of pick myself up and carry in, on. In the course of this interview, every time I try and encourage you to look backwards, <laughs> you start talking about now. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, I'm not great at doing it. And it's quite an uncomfortable thing for me to do, only yes. because I want to move forward. But what I discovered writing the book is that I did something I didn't know I'd done in that I had set up this goal of wanting to be the successful barrister and make my father proud. And I think a way I hid from what happened to me is I decided to shut down that part of my life and those ambitions and go on a different path that I could be someone different, if that makes sense. Yes, it does make sense. So I decided that Gina was going to shut down. The one who was the lawyer, who was going to be the ambitious lawyer, was going to close down. And I was going to go and do something completely different. Because your world was shaken so Might profoundly. Have, exactly. You, your place in it shifts as well. And also my place in it, my confidence, everything sort of went. And so I thought I could reinvent myself in a new world, in a different world that was, to me at the time, a bit more frivolous. Yes. Because I was very serious about the law. But I saw business and starting businesses as being wrongly, as I learned, but as being a little bit more, you know, you can take more risks, it's a bit more frivolous. So I thought, well, I'll go into the world of business. And mm. that, so I then invented, well, my, a different Gina who went into that world. Did you have a desire to be wealthy? Oh, gosh, no. Never? No. Which is which has been my saviour, actually, I yes. think. 
because it's allowed me to walk away at times when I needed to from very bad relationships without no- without anything. So I've never had a problem with leaving with nothing. I mean, money is not important to me. Your first marriage was at 21. Yeah. So that speaks of a fairly determined decision to, to embark upon an entirely fresh course. It was a fresh it, course. Because Gina, the lawyer, wouldn't, wouldn't have wouldn't, done that. Wouldn't have been getting married until yeah. she'd got no. her probably... Yeah, her silk done, exactly. Or... <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. If ever, actually. Yes, yes. But then it was like it was somebody that I'd known sort of since sixteen. So you know, this is somebody I trusted. Mm. So it was a good relationship. But I never, I, I, marriage was never particularly important to me. Being a mother was always very important to me. So then, new Gina, new life, husband, and a baby yes. soon after. So you know, then and a business, and, and so there, there was a new if you like, um, new journey to and charter. Did it, did, did it work? Because it sounds no, as if... No, it didn't you, work. No, because you're building up barriers to keep the past away from you. Well, no, because what, what you do is you, you're then not really being yourself. Right. And I discover that I can't keep down my true me for too long. What does that mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Um, so, the really ambitious, yes. vocal, standing up for what's right, calling things out. That's just, uh, just the really annoying me. So you couldn't <laughs> just get on with running businesses no. or making money. Or you, we, we, talk, we call it social justice. Yeah. So, social justice yeah. is, is in your DNA. It's always there in the back of my mind, nagging, you know, anywhere I saw it, I'd call it out. And, and I didn't know at the time that actually the thing, and I say it and I, I absolutely believe this, the person who saved me and brought me back to who I am, the fighter that I am, is actually my daughter. Yes. Because I was so happy to be a mother. I was just delighted that I was going to have this wonderful baby girl. But the NHS was failing. There was no one to deliver her. And she was starved of oxygen. Mm. So she had quite complicated special needs. And I had to fight for her. Right. So she helped me discover. Rediscover. Rediscover myself. Except that it was someone you loved that you were fighting for rather than... Yes, you know, the, the the kind of people you will never meet. Well, no, not really, because I was fighting for her, for somebody I loved, as you say. So, I mean, you know, my whole world. But I knew that if I fought for her in a certain way to get statements, to get a different way that uh, schooling provided for special needs, that it wasn't just about her. I knew it would help everybody. So, you know, my, my first big battle with a local authority was to ensure that children got statemented from the age of four or five. I didn't know, that about, I didn't know that about you. <laughs> okay. And, that, and that's so you kicked a door open yes. through which then anyone can pass. Yes, because it was very, very hard to get statements in those days because local authorities knew that would be a commitment till 18. Right. And it was gold dust to get a statement. So that was my first really big battle to get her help so i'm just intrigued by the can i use the word domesticity that's not quite right is it maternal <laughs> instinct yes. fierce maternal instinct which reinvigorated your kind of political consciousness but but so it, was it possible around this period you were 23 when your little girl was born could could you have become could you have stayed at home or, or was it always going to be coupled with business yeah, I just, I'm just could never have stayed at home. So that, I mean, there wasn't an attempt to do that when you no, were trying to reinvent no. yourself. You were never no. trying to become a kind of housewife. Or... No, because I mean, I my mother had given up her dreams and had become a housewife. Right, and I she was, you know, in those conversations and those times, my my father would be there with all these important people having important conversations. She'd be serving the the drinks or making the snacks or whatever, and I never saw myself as doing that. No, I wanted to be part well, of the conversation. She probably didn't either when she was. Um, no, no, she, she was she was very happy doing that. Was she? She, she, okay. she was very happy being a mother and a housewife. And would she have wanted that for you? 
No, never. Ah, And she knew that I would never have actually given it any credence anyway. There was an opportunity for me to go back, be married to the right son of the right family and have a career path. And, you know, she just looked at me after she said it one day and went, you're not going to say yes, are you? And I would never have said yes. (laughs) Um, So, I mean... I I just can't ever have imagined I would have been a stay-at-home mother, even though I think it's one of it's actually probably the most important job a woman can do. It just wasn't for me. I wanted to be a mother, but also to go out there and fight. But but my mothering instinct is not just about my my children. No, I sort of feel responsibility for anyone I come across. My people work for me. People, I I just feel responsible. Yeah, I get that. A lot of people don't, and a lot of people who don't get it have a problem believing that it's true, don't they? I mean, oh, this, this brings us back that. into, back into the that. Brexit arena. Yeah. It's, a, it's, almost, it's almost like a limb that you either have or you don't have. Well, it's an interesting thing because very early on when I was getting a lot of abuse from the right-wing press, I actually asked a journalist who works for one of them, I said, hmm. so why are, you, you know, why are you going after me in this way? And they said, because you're too good to be true. There's hmm. got to be something about you. We, we're determined to find the skeleton in your closet. And I said, would you just come and ask me? Yes. And so that term, he said, you're just too good to be true. It's almost as though nobody's going to believe this. Because they have to believe, and it's a mark of the right-wing press, they have to believe that there's a, there's a darkness in everybody's soul well, that I reflects said, the darkness in their And I said own. to him, uh, your statement you've just made says more about you than it does about me. Doesn't it? And yet you were on good enough terms with them to... Oh, I've always Banter gone out of my. And... Oh, I've always gone out of my way to speak to them because I don't understand talking to people who just agree with me. No, of I course. really don't understand it. No, um, well, it makes a mockery of this interview. <laughs> but it's you have to go out there. You have to just be. Well, I mean, you say I'm... you don't, Gina. You don't have to. Do, you don't have to do any I of do. this. I do. I do. I mean, what, what I would just... happen if you didn't? Would you be like a sort of? <laughs> A, a greyhound stuck in the stall while all the other dogs were sprinting around the track and you'd you know, just be throwing yourself against yeah, the door. Yeah, my, hus- and- my husband said this about me after soon after meeting me. He said, if the ants could talk, you'd be lying on the floor talking to them. <laughs> and it is tr- absolutely true. And you, I, I just need to know, I mean, as a little girl growing up, I was the most annoying little girl at school. I never took anything the nun said for, uh, as gospel. I questioned them all the time about everything. It's just who I am. Yeah. <laughs> And yet that is the thing that's hardest to communicate to people who, who, who don't get it. It, it, it. People will either get it without having to have it explained or they'll never get it despite... Which is fine. Some people will never get it. Yeah. And absolutely, that's fine. You, you it, mentioned your husband. That's, that's your third husband. Yes. So, <laughs> I got it wrong lots of times, so, so twice the, before. So the first marriage didn't work out despite no. the fact that you'd found a happiness in some senses that you weren't expecting or certainly hadn't planned on. I did, and that was because of the the stress on the relationship when you have a child with special needs. And I dedicated myself to her because I didn't believe the doctors and what they were saying. So they were limiting her. They were saying she couldn't do this. She wouldn't be able to be independent. She wouldn't. And I thought, well, I'm not going to listen to any of you. She's going to be the best that she can be, which meant I had to dedicate myself to make sure that she could be the best as she could be. To the exclusion of all else. To the exclusion of all else. Because, you know, you can only put so much energy and, you know, and I taught her to walk, I taught her to speak. I taught her to do everything that she can do. And that took a lot of dedication and time. And so, you know, literally putting her foot, one foot in front of the other in a playground relentlessly every morning so she could learn to climb, to go down the slide, so she'd have that reward of going down the slide. What what made you think you could do that? Especially if the medical (laughs) advice was contrary. What made you think? I I didn't know that she could do it. I just thought, I'm going to try and see. I'm I'm just going to try. So every every improvement you see justifies the next attempt. Absolutely. And the next and the next. And while this was happening, you could feel your marriage slipping away. I 
don't think I even knew it. It just happened one day because he just felt, you know, and, and also the other thing I've discovered, and over the years I've now discovered this as well, because I do a lot of work with parents, kids mm. with special needs, is that um, there is this pride that you have as a father. And he found it quite difficult to accept that his daughter wasn't like the other children, yes. his friend's children. She wasn't reaching them. It, it was sort of a, a sense of embarrassment. Mm. And he, he was an incredibly proud person. And that's just who he is. And I can't say that he was wrong to feel that or right. It's just what happened. So he was feeling neglected by me and I was neglecting him. And also he found it difficult emotionally to to, to accept Luciana and her difficulties and almost ashamed of her yeah. because Eastbourne is a very small community and, sure. you know, everyone knows everyone else and everything else. And so I just decided it was easier for me to walk away. It couldn't hold. It couldn't hold. And also I just couldn't cope with his baggage he needed to deal with. Yeah. And so we just drifted apart. So now, instead of being the youngest QC <laughs> in British legal history, you're, 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 you're a single mother of a yeah. child with profound... With special needs, yes, that nobody needs. Can, can identify, really. And, and how are you then juggling that with your need to work and your need, I mean... Well, I didn't quite know what I was going to do next. So where um, are we now? This would So be... I was back in... So I then moved to London when Luciana was five. So she was born in 1988. So you're, so, you're 28 Yeah, yeah. Point. So okay. I moved back to London. I decided, actually, what I'd do is I'd go back to university. Right. I discovered... Unfinished business as well. Unfinished business, but not the law. No. I thought that I, I'd actually discovered a business and marketing, and I realised that I actually had quite a flair for communications and marketing. So I thought, well, it would be good to have a professional qualification in it. Right. So I then enrolled in London and, and did a marketing degree. And how did Lucienne fit into that? So what happens is you get lectures that repeated for matured students. Right. So whenever I could, I'd work wherever I could. And then I would take her with me in the evenings to lectures. And I just somehow managed to do it. But she was just with me whenever she could and as much as she could be. And then there was another marriage. Yep. Which, um, from what I know of it, is the hardest bit to understand in some ways of your story, because the chap you married has gone on the record opposing multiculturalism and <laughs> being fairly critical of homosexuality as well. Yeah, I can't say. I mean, this all I found out about all of this after years after we divorced, but it okay. is quite extraordinary because I think there was always a part of me that felt guilty that uh, Lucien didn't have both parents, yes, because I'd grown up in, with an incredible father. Yes. And there was always a part of me that felt guilty that she didn't have a father. And so I came across this very charismatic, incredibly successful Irishman who is very smart, who had three children who loved them. And I thought, my gosh, he purports to love me. He purports to love my daughter. And here is sort of a family that she can have. So everything was attractive about it, about the relationship. And I felt that this is somebody I loved and he could love me. And everything about it seemed right. But I didn't know. I didn't know until after we got married his true intention. Or I don't even know if he knew his own, the true intention. But for whatever reason, the things that, I mean, I can only, I've never, you know, I've, been, I've never spoken about this because I, I ran away, literally ran away from the marriage. How, how, um, long, how long after getting married? A couple, couple of years. That's because a, the penny I, dropped very quickly then. Yeah, because I, it, it was almost the things that attracted me to him were the things he then wanted to break. It was almost a, yes. he needed to own me. And so he just basically set about breaking me down. And so, so I have the, to say... Would, the, the, the scale of the challenge was part of the attraction then because yes. you would be such a difficult person to, yes, to own exactly. or to break down. So I, was, th I think there was a challenge there that he sort of, if, if I could be obedient almost, right. 
then he had won a trophy in some way. It was it was a very strange mindset. And I now know, again, from years of working now with people from domestic violence, that it's not uncommon. Right. It's, it's quite an extraordinary relationship that develops between a, a strong woman and a man that then abuses her as a, almost it's a challenge to break to break you. It's very, very intricate, but it's, yes. it's there's a logic to it. There is there? a logic to it. And there's also a warped it, logic, it's right? a warped logic, but you can see how it yes, how it course. happens. Of course. And and I think one of the things I, I say is that one of the criticisms that's put towards women is that why didn't you leave earlier? Why didn't you ask for help? And I say, but if you are so broken that you have no recognition of who you are and you are emotionally crippled, how can you possibly ask for help? Mm. And that's the thing I discovered is when you are that broken, you can't. It is impossible. You have to somehow find the strength to ask for help. And for me, again, it was my daughter. Right. Because I knew I had to protect her. She can't live like this. She couldn't live like that. And I had to get out to be strong enough to look after her. Are we are we back at school? Is this part of the... The reason why you, 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 the character form is if you put up with the adversity and if your daughter hadn't been there, you almost would have felt that you were admitting defeat or failing? No, I don't think. No, no I've never had a problem with failing. I've right. never Failing is OK. I've, I've never had a problem with that. I think it's what I would have. I would have probably stayed longer. I'm a fighter, so I would yes. have stayed longer to make it work. I yes. think that's what would have changed. Would have been different is that I would have and it wouldn't fought. Have worked. Really. It wouldn't have worked, <laughs> but, but I spent... would have stayed longer okay. discovering that. I think I. It was a shorter period of time because I had to get out for her. Out to where? I mean, where? Because so again, you're a single mother with a. Well, for that you. point, yeah, with nothing because, uh, you know, I left with nothing Did both really? times. Both times. I literally got divorced in about six weeks yes. and took nothing. Why um, not? You could have done, presumably. Or... Yeah, but what's the point? Fighting. Sub- oh, I see. Yes. Well, cause I needed to reserve. I needed all my fight. energy. I needed all my energy, all my strength and all my focus for her and to rebuild. And yes. that's where I was focused on. And I know that I have the strength and the ability to earn. It doesn't matter how. You knew that now because we've been... No, I've always known that. I've just, always known that. Could be, I've always there was a that. brief period of chambermaiding, which was quite I a mean, formative yeah. experience for you as well, wasn't yeah, it? No, no, no. At school, I mean, when my parents sort of said, you know, we, we have currency restriction, we won't be able to get money to you. We'll probably just have enough money to pay day fees, but that's it. You and your pocket brother are going to have to find... No, yeah. no, 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 no pocket nothing. money, nothing like that. You know, I knew I'd, I'd just go and get myself a but job. This is such an interesting contradiction because, <laughs> isn't it? Because you, you seem to have spent very little time administering to your inner life, your emotional needs. So you've ended up in two potentially dysfunctional relationships mm. and yet your role in the world and your determination to find a role in the world is complete. Do you, do you think perhaps you haven't been kind enough at this point because we're now reaching 2002? Mm. You haven't been very kind to yourself. That's what I discovered writing the book. Is it? I hadn't actually ever thought about it. What I realised that I did, and I often do, is I just roll my I get on with it, yes, exactly. which means I don't actually give myself the, the the space to almost mourn for my own losses. Yeah. And that's something I had to learn to do later on in life. But it's I just didn't think I had, I didn't have the time to do that. I just needed to get, I just needed to get on and do things. And it wasn't until much later that I've ever, I mean, I'm only learning to do it now. I'm not particularly good at uh, looking after myself. And I always have to remind myself, it's a joke I told at the school, at the sixth form. And now I use it to remind myself. And I said, the thing is, if, if Martin Luther hadn't gone to sleep, he would have never had a dream. 
<laughs> that, that's your own. Yeah, that's so brilliant. Said, that's going so, in the dictionary of quotations, isn't it? So, I said, so now I remind myself that I have to sleep so that yeah, I can actually recharge myself yes. to go on and have to fulfil the dream. So I said it as a bit of a quip to kids and I actually now use it on myself to remind mm. myself that I need to sleep and stop. Of course, because otherwise you will run out. You will expire. I will expire. And also I realise that I have quite a lot I can do now. I think now what's really interesting about where I find myself now and the platform I now have, because I have the privilege of having that platform, I need to take care of myself so that yes. I can use it. Ah, Yes. And that's something I've not done in the past. No, I get that. I mean, it's it's not unlike a kind of an artist who's who's lived a fairly irresponsible <laughs> life, realising that if they're going to continue making art, they have to start looking after the instrument. Yes, and it's really interesting you use the word irresponsible because... I didn't mean that in the no, context no, no, of no, your no, no, existence. No, 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 it's interesting because one of the criticisms of, of my book that's already come out from very few people who've read it is... There are lots of things that have happened to you in your life. Is that because you're really irresponsible oh, really? and you take risks? Gosh. And Gosh. I thought, no, I didn't deliberately go no. <laughs> set out to take risks. You didn't think you were jumping I've, off a I didn't. What I did do is pick myself up and carry on. Mm. But it's interesting, that interpretation, that mm. if you somehow have an eventful life for whatever reason, you've taken risks. Of course. It's a very, it, it's peculiar to me, that yes. view. No, well, you can see where, where it comes from. But of course your risks have ultimately paid off. So we're now <laughs> ultimately. we're now at the 2002, your second divorce yep. kicks in. Mm-hmm. And this is where the journey to today begins. Yes. So Because I, I just, well, I just decided this is now going to be about me achieving and doing what I wanted to do. Yes. So I start another business, my, my daughter. Are you wealthy now? I mean, had your other businesses gone well? Were you, could you have, could you have, jacked it all in and lived comfortably for no, the rest of I'd your life. No, because I walked away from everything. So that was it? So no, was it was a, I literally, okay. uh, to stay safe, yes. I needed to walk away from everything. Okay. I couldn't allow any sort of way back into my life but for my ex-husband. I decided that the way to save myself was to walk away completely. Okay. And so um, so you, you, in it, you, you extracted yourself yes, financially, I mean, emotionally, ev- everything, physically, everything, mentally. Everything. Yes. Apart from a car and two suitcases, that was it. Okay. So now you start again So I start scratch. again. Cool. So I started again. What did that involve? So I started the consultancy, walked into several of the places on Harley Street and said, this is my business. This is my CV. I, I managed to persuade, I'm a great Oscar Wilde fan. Mm. I'd managed to uh, persuade the estate that I could use his signature as our logo. So I started a company called Wild Marketing. And it's all about being talked about and walked into Harley Street and ended up with three clients to do their marketing, a dentist, a plastic surgeon, whatever, and uh, got got going. In seven months, I was I had seven clients. This seven. is why you talk so casually about knowing you could do it. Because yeah. I mean, even then, you, you sort of think, yeah, I'll do that. That'll, that'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, the, set up the business. And you've got, got that fearlessness because I hate yeah. knocking on doors. I can't, I can't do it. I, I fear rejection. You don't. Because no. you've already established no, quite no, no, robustly. You don't, you've got no, no because, problem with failure. No, and also, this is the way I view it. What could possibly, what are the downsides? Yeah. They'll say no. What's the worst that could happen? Well, what's the worst that can happen? And, you know, those are pretty good odds. It tends to be yes, no, or maybe. Those are pretty good odds as far as I'm concerned. Yes. And so... Yep, just go on and do it. So the consultancy goes brilliantly. Yep. Then you meet your Alan. third husband, Alan, yep. with whom you set up the company that sort of pushed your 
financial situation yes. into the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. So, so it was off, just after the financial crisis. Yeah, okay. Um, so this is all relatively recent, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, in, in, the, in the context so, of your life. Yeah, yeah. So when the consultancy that I set up while marketing became successful, I realised then I could, it was my money, I could do what I wanted with it and became quite successful quite quickly. And so I used that money to then get involved in social justice. So that's when I started had, using had my money. Had that always been bubbling away in the background? Was that, so I know I will get round to this one day, but I currently have to sort this out and this out and this out. You know, I need to, it wasn't about being successful to get rich. It was about being successful. I needed enough money to go and do the things I wanted to go and do. Right. So you had a sense of mission. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I know. Absolutely. Well, I love the way you say it as if it's a silly question. It's not a silly question for, <laughs> for other people. To, I know, but just, yeah, I know. But <laughs> it, it's just, broadly speaking, I have quite big ambitions of yes. what I want to do. And I just needed to get there and earn enough money to do that. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. And and so there's your consultancy. And then there's the firm, the investment firm yes. that you set up with Alan. Mm-hmm. And that finally gives you both the stage and the resources that you need to and, embark and, upon. Well, and the experience. Yes, because actually, yeah. you can't fight a battle until you actually know where the pressure points are and the language. You have to to me, it's all very well battling an issue. You need to also then find the solutions. And so unless you have the experience, you can't come up with the solutions. So I'm very much more focused on the not just the battle, but finding the solutions. And that's what I've done with all my campaigning is try and put forward solutions to whatever the issue is. But within five um, years, you, you're advising the Labour Party on what should be in their manifesto? Well, even before that, because we started the business in 2009. In 2012, I started something called the True and Fair Campaign. Yes. And this year, I've actually managed to get text into three EU directives, two that that came in earlier this year, and one the shareholder directive that comes in next year. So I very quickly, again, fearlessly, I suppose, now you've said it, (laughs) I couldn't get anywhere in the UK um, after the 2015 election, because that's the win. I thought, right, we've got the reforms into the manifesto, but then, of course, Labour didn't win the election. And so then I had to almost start again. So I went cross-party, saw everybody, realised that actually the city was not going to change. Well, some some of this stuff made enemies in the city, didn't it? A lot of it. Yes. Because what I was calling for was, was basically the level of transparency and reform I was calling for would really dent profit margins, Yes. which it's going to do. And so I just thought, well, if the UK is not going to do it, I'll go to Europe. And that was my first interaction with Europe. So I started going around all the member states, Europe, lobbying. And what I found was, because I had a plan... Not only was I saying there's a problem, but this is the solution. Right. Most of the doors were open. Because that's what they want to hear. They, 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 well, I remember going into, there, there's an organisation called ESMA, who are like the FCA of Europe. So they're yes. like the regulator of the financial services across Europe. Yeah. And I remember going into a meeting there and we sort of, we, Alan was with me. And we, so he presented the problem and I presented the solution. And the guy across the table just looked at me and said, is this Christmas? And I said, <laughs> I said what do you mean? And he said, well, do you... You're giving a solution. How much do you want of it? And I said, no, no, I'm just giving it to you. Yes. And he said, no, 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 it must be a catch. Gosh. I said, no, no, you can have the algorithms. You can have everything we've built, the underlying, um, you just have it. And they just could believe it. Um, so, of course, they would embrace it. So we, we were, were able to do it in a pretty short space of time. Still at this point, it hadn't really occurred to you that if you got it enshrined in European Union law, <laughs> it, it still might not involve Britain. Back to Gina in just a moment. But before that, have a listen to this. Hi, Russell Kane here, and I'm hosting a brand new podcast for Joe, Boys Don't Cry, where I get a bunch of men together and force them to talk about the things we never talk about. Body hair, body shape, 
Why do girls only fancy bastards? All the things we worry about but never discuss. Oh, and I'll also have a girl helping me each week just to make sure we're not talking rubbish. So go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, wherever, and download Boys Don't Cry now. Cheers, Russell. Now, back to Gina Miller. The Brexit stuff then? Yep. Followed on from that? Yes. I see. Ah, uh, that's the missing piece of the jigsaw. So, 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 started... so it gave you an understanding you didn't have previously of the supranational power yes. of European Union legislation and and bodies. Absolutely, because when I was there, when because I, I was meeting with all the consumer groups, and I knew that consumer protection and rights were just at the top of their agenda. Right. And I didn't know that before, but I was going around to all the member states where I was lobbying all the member states, and that's when I really began to understand the workings of the EU. And that's when, in the run up to the referendum, you became profoundly frustrated by the ignorance on both sides. Yes, on both sides. That's another That's, missing piece of the jigsaw, isn't it? Is you're, not, you're not some sort of arch Remainer who thinks that the Remain campaign was brilliant. The Remain campaign arguably was was, oh was, even, was considerably worse than if, the Look, with my pure marketing head on, Go on. the Leave campaign wins Oh, a hands cup. down. I hands mean, down. it was one of the best market. You, you can't... And the Leave side didn't If you leave your conscience learn. at the door, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, a yeah. brilliant no, no, campaign. No. <laughs> it, it was, you know, but it, if you leave your conscience and your moral compass at the door, yes, it was a brilliant campaign. And I think you know, there was complacency. No institution works if people aren't alert. And I think that's a thing on both sides you have yeah. to understand. And the EU side is not perfect and neither is the UK side. But everyone pretended it was an either or yeah, as we binary, go into it. It's faux binary. It wasn't a binary choice. So when did you decide that you had to get involved in the Article 50 issue? What, where did that come from? So one of my hobbies. Yes. <laughs> you have time for hobbies. I'm obsessive about okay. The law is still something I'm very passionate about. Yes. So <laughs> I read Hansard. It's yeah. really sad. Um <laughs> So I've been reading Hansard for years now, and I've been very concerned at how much the Henry VIII... I was aware of the Henry VIII powers all the way back to 2014-15. Okay, gosh. And I realised that the Labour Party were using it too. So successive governments have been using it. And the Hansard Society in particular, I was reading a lot of their articles and their concerns. So I was well aware of the royal prerogative. So I actually knew what it meant. Gosh. Way, way before the prospect of it being yeah, employed to accelerate. Yeah, completely before that. Yeah, no. So as soon as it pops up on the horizon with... I was alarmed immediately. Oh, so what do you do? Who do you <laughs> ring? I mean, how did you and these other two no, people no, no, no. end up... But this is the thing. Faith is incredible. <laughs> you see, this is all supposed to happen. This is why yeah. I say I'm exactly the right place I'm supposed yeah. to be. Because I didn't Mish Gondre, who at the law firm. I was not a client of theirs and no intention. But months before, on the Monday after the referendum, so that would have been the... 26th, on the Monday, I was booked to do an event at their offices talking about lack of diversity in the city and why equality is not working and all this sort of stuff. And I walked into a packed room and in my usual way said a few controversial things on the stage. And uh, one of the senior partners said to me, so is there anything afterwards, you know, drinks and things? He said, oh, is there anything else you're passionate about? At which point I just gave him about 10 minute sort of diatribe about nothing was going to happen unless we had an act. And and I just gave him all the legal concerns I had. And he looked at me, sort of really bemused me and sort of smiled all the way through my conversation and said, we have the same concerns, Gina. We're lawyers. We have the same concerns. We're thinking of drafting a letter. Would you like to come in and we'll tell you what it is we're doing? Because we need a client. Because even though we're lawyers, we need need a litigant. You need to be representing somebody. (laughs) What would have happened if that if you hadn't turned out if you'd been sick that day? I think what may have happened is that because they were they not from all... their point of view, from yours. How would you have? How would you have actioned your concerns? Oh no, I was already writing letters to all the Labour MPs I knew because right. I was a member of the Labour Party, saying yes. you're aware of and printed out on that weekend all the arguments from Hansard 
which I was going to send. So I'd already decided I was going to send them to everybody. So it escalates quite quickly. Yep. You, and again, people won't realise this, you you were appointed by the court to be the lead yes. claimant. So I, I can't imagine you were particularly perturbed by that, now that I know you're a little better. But, I but was it wasn't, quite you weren't putting your hand up for it. You weren't seeking to be a figurehead. No, because what happened, there was a, um, a, a hairdresser, as he called, de Santos, yes. who had already filed a case which was slightly different to, sure. to ours. But born of similar concerns. S- similar concerns, not exactly. But there were four others. Right. And these were what you might call democracy geeks. Yeah, yeah. These That's what you have in yeah, yeah, common yeah, yeah, with yeah, these yeah. people. You're so, democracy geeks who feel that the public are unaware of what's been ridden roughshod uh, over. Yeah, and, and rights and all. So they were geeks. So there were four or five other the cases and then uh, there was so, our case right, and yes. okay. Lord Levinson suddenly announced after hearing the presentation if you like from the lead counsel in each one QCs he suddenly makes a, a ruling on the 19th of July so oh. we're sitting all we're all sitting there last thing I expect is that I'm going to I'm thinking oh well we're all sitting together we'll be yeah, all yeah, together yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he says he's appointing a lead claimant Mrs. Miller, and I just, I hap- I remember it so clearly, I always will do. I was looking at my phone at the time. Yeah. Very naughty. Really? Not supposed to have your- contempt, yes, yes, I, know, I know, exactly. That's why I'm saying it really quietly. I was actually looking at my phone and I heard him say Mrs. Miller and I sort of <laughs> looked up and then my QC, David Panic, he sort of leaned over and whispered and he said, we're lead claimant. And I went, Gosh. what the hell does that mean? And what did he say? He said, I'll tell you later. <laughs> And you found out. <laughs> and I found out subsequently. later. But so, it was, I, I just, so this I just is where no it idea. Gets, this is where it gets surreal, of course. Yeah, oh, it's completely surreal. I mean, much of it already is, but this is where <laughs> you become public enemy number one for the yes. Daily Mail and, and, and sundry fellow travellers for taking personal and professional action designed to protect parliamentary sovereignty. Mm. So against the backdrop of all these people bleating about sovereignty, sovereignty. What it was you the were very doing, thing they were well, talking now, about. Okay, here's a challenge for you. That was a marketing failure on your part, wasn't it? Why couldn't you persuade all of these people that you were actually the one on the side of sovereignty and they were the ones that were backing attempts to undermine because it? Because from day one, those right-wing press already called it the anti-Brexit case mm. and I was the anti-Brexit. They tarred so me they, in the case. Yeah. It was very difficult because actually it wasn't a case about our constitution. It was the anti-Brexit case. Yes, of course. And that's the, the minute I walked out of that courtroom, that's how they started it. When did you realise just how egregious a target you had on your back? Later that day on the 19th of July. So soon? Yes, because what happened was the law firm got targeted and then the Facebook posting went up with a swastika on my forehead. And so it started straight away. It started literally that afternoon. And when I got back to the office, I remember my office being quite quiet because my staff, the, the email boxes were already filling up. It started immediately. Were you scared? I was phased. I didn't quite understand. Because to me, as you've just said, yeah. I was thinking, hang on a minute, I'm bringing a case about the Constitution. and You, naive, perhaps, you yeah, perhaps underestimated other people's interest in the niceties of Hansard <laughs> and the law. <laughs> I think the minute they called it the anti-Brexit case yeah, and people, you know... Which it was, d- displayed a degree of ignorance as well. Do you think the ignorance was willful? Do you think they knew better and chose to paint it like no, that? No, I don't think. I no, think I people just either. thought, we're going to lose our win. It was so entrenched by now that everything yeah, was the enemy. That's how high court judges end up being the enemies of the people. Oh, no, it? everything was toxic. Thing. God. What's the difference between phased and frightened? So, OK, to explain that. So the 19th of July, this all happens. The court case is going to be in October. So that whole summer, the idea was to destroy me. And yeah. I know this. Uh, I've been told this. Is that because if they had broken me, I would leave claim and there'd be no case. Mm. It would be one of the other cases and they would be delayed or whatever it is and, you know, Article 50 would be triggered. So the idea was to break me. And that's in that summer. 
when the death threat started against me, the children, I just said to my husband, because I had to negotiate this with him, I said, I have to carry on because this can't allow it to be happening. And actually what happened that summer that changed in me was I realised what I was fighting for. I was fighting to stop those people who were hating me and trying to, they could not ever become mainstream. And that was my fight. So in fact, I mean, Article 50 subsequently triggered, albeit that you you won your court case, Mm. that, that some people might seek to portray that as evidence that you'd been wasting your time. Yeah. But by then your cause, your mission was different from the simple And it carries sovereignty. on to be. This is a country that I love yeah. and I grew up with as being the best in the world. And I'm not going to see it destroyed. So I'm well, going to fight. By these forces of by hatred. By these forces of hatred. Bigotry. You know, I cannot abdicate my responsibility. I just can't. If this is what we should expect from immigrants, send them back to their stinking <laughs> jungles... £5,000 for the first person to accidentally run over this bloody troublesome first-generation immigrant. This was a a chap called Rodri Phillips who was sentenced to 12 weeks in prison. I I mention it solely to give anybody unaware of... A Viscount. Yes, he he was, a fourth Viscount St David's, a flavour of what what you were exposed to. But but I sense that despite the fact that this is one that came to court and, and ended in a prison sentence, this was far from remarkable. No, that was actually one of the least threatening in a way because we could go after him. But there were what's called cease and desist letters. There were eight of those. But when they're bounced around the world, the police can't find this thing. So some of the the ones that came from the dark web, for Mm. example, of, you know, you will cut your kids' throats and you'll watch them, whatever it is, those ones you can never find. How how do you decide? Because... Actually, I guess you hadn't been exposed to it much prior to this happening, but but I have, oddly. And I, I dismiss almost all of it as, as fantasists and idiots. How, how do you make the distinction between the ones that need to be taken seriously? Or do you take them all seriously because one of them will be for real? It's very hard. Yes. So what I decided to do is I had to take them all seriously because I have three children. Okay. Yeah, of course. So I decided that the only way was to change my life. Which meant security. And- security, not going out as much. Everything about our lives changed. So now we have a debate every time we go out. And your um, husband is absolutely part of this. Oh, he has to be. Well, I know he does, um, but the first marriage, it was it, the no. fact that you forgot about yeah, it. Yes, so, no, 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 yeah. no. Now, what I've learned, actually, is that I have to share everything about my own ambitions. And he has to be part of that because I'm not going to let that failure repeat itself. So I did learn from the mistakes of, of not including my husband in, what, in my fights. But it has changed the way we live our lives and the conversations we have with the children are possibly Bizarre. And we use humour a lot of the time yes, because it's the only way to get through it. Yes. Um, but we do have some really strange conversations. And, and I, I mean, this is this is the point at which I should remind people that everything we've discussed is covered in your new book. Yes. There must have been times, surely. And I, I've got a horrible feeling you're going to say, no, no, not at all. When you just thought, right, I'd like to stop now. I'd like to give back my involvement and just go back to how we were before. I absolutely. And there are times when I thought... What am I doing to our family? I can't. I mean, the fact is they have to read this. When my son once read something by mistake, a friend showed him on social media about his mother and a photograph. And, because we can't stress enough yeah. how vile the stuff. I mean, everything you oh. could expect to be said, A, about a woman, oh, B, about it, a person is, of colour, C, about... Uh, uh, it, it's unbelievable. And so I had to think about that. And then my husband just sort of smiled and laughed at me when I said that because he said, you're just tired. <laughs> 
Just go to sleep because you wake up in the morning and tell me that in the morning. <laughs> and your dream will be back. <laughs> so I went, went to bed, woke up in the morning and I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. Of course yeah, I'm not. It's, it's sure. just pure exhaustion. But it's the children of the window, aren't they? They're the way in. That's the stuff that makes you yes. question. And, you know, I say to them all the time and I tell them everything I'm doing and they just say, but mum, you're doing it for us. They know that. They know I'm doing it for them. But the other thing is, they, you know, the humour thing is, you know, I'll put on my, in the weekends, my dark glasses and my running cap and my mm. running gear so I don't look like me. I'm like work gene, as they call it. And they go, mum, you do know you look exactly the same. <laughs> great disguise, mum. <laughs> so they just, but it's great, you know. And you the need other, that. Yeah, no, no, you we do. Or, you know, we were playing Monopoly this weekend and we, they were cheating and I was, I was going, they said, mum, when, when you weren't at home so much, we couldn't cheat at these games with you because you never had time to play with us. Oh, so, lovely. I mean, so, you know, we, there, 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 there is But it is the strange thing. You, you are an optimistic person. I don't know quite how that has been sustained. Your, your optimism shines through even after the country has done something that we, there's no secret, we both consider yeah. to be an act of absolute idiocy. You've seen a side of humanity that perhaps you didn't appreciate mm. existed before. For me, it's not the existence of the horror. It's the number of people that are comfortable with it, the number of people that will join in given an opportunity well, it's become to, acceptable. to revivify mm. these ancient prejudices that we felt we'd seen away at least for generations, if not forever. And yet you are still optimistic. Oh, absolutely. How? how? (laughs) Because I believe in people. I think we are fundamentally good. And actually, one of the things I miss most about my life now is I can't people watch. Mm. And one of my guilty pleasures used to be just sitting on the tube and watching people. People are amazing. And when it comes down to it, we really do love each other. And that's why I have hope. And... When you mentioned that you can't do that anymore. No, so I can't do that anymore. talked about the social media stuff. What sort of stuff do you encounter in public, as it were? Well, I'm always on tenterhooks, I sort mm. of, which is exhausting. So of I'm always sort of on uh, listening because the abuse that I get shouted at me or threats of acid attacks or, you know, even with the children. Mm. And, and that's why I don't go out with them as much because even with them there, people will share the most vile things to me. Has it got better or is it? It goes in waves. Okay. Now Depending on the news cycle. Yes. Not only the news cycle, but it depends what other people say, because right. apparently I'm so powerful now that I'm behind all sorts of things. Right. The conspiracy- no, I think I do, you, when George Soros is busy. <laughs> yeah. When, when George, George Soros, Soros is, is busy, <laughs> which, which is quite extraordinary because I've never had a penny from Soros, but apparently no. he's funded me and I'm yeah. a puppet. All these sorts of things. And I think, so if somebody says something, a politician or a business or whatever, Apparently, it's my fault. Oh, I see. It's extraordinary. So yes. then there'll be another wave. I remember some advice a PR agent gave me in early days. She said, Gina, you need to go away now and let things cool down and come back. And I just looked at her and said, why? Why would I allow myself to be bullied into silence? I'm mm. never going to let that happen. Gina Miller, thank you. I did warn you that I was in danger of uh, being a bit of a fanboy in that interview and absolutely nothing happened during the course of it to alter that position. Although, like you, I now know an awful lot more about the author of Rise, Life Lessons in Speaking Out, Standing Tall and Leading the Way than I did before. If if you enjoyed that, uh, looking under the bonnet, if you like, of people who have quite a high public profile in politics, you might want to check out the Nick Clegg episode of Unfiltered. Here's a little clip. People say stuff. And it's, I always think psychologically it's like road rage. When yes. people say stuff, feel stuff, mm. splutter stuff behind the wheel, and indeed, of course, behind a keyboard, that you would never, ever say to another human being. I remember, um, and I don't want to, I'm sure he didn't, maybe didn't know what he was saying. I'm sure he's a perfectly nice bloke, I don't know him. But I remember there was a, a Labour MP when I was in, 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 in coalition, and obviously the, the whole Labour narrative was all, you know, how dare you, you Judas Iscariot, you've sold out, all that kind of, And I remember him 
this was Barry Gardner, and he was yeah. like red, and he he almost spat out across the across the Commons. I remember saying, "You are a quizzling." And I thought, does he know what that means? Mm. That is a Nazi collaborator. Yes, yes. I thought, and I and I thought maybe he just doesn't know what it means. But you know, it has got to the point where people. Here's the thing: I don't think people feel they need to worry anymore about the words they use. So do go back and check that out, along with the rest of the back catalogue. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to Unfiltered and to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And of course, if you know someone who you think might like Unfiltered, make your good deed for the day telling them about it. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.